0: Oh, come on, why don't we just give him an encore of worship and praise right now and let him know he is God alone. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. God is so awesome. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated for just a moment before we dismiss everybody. So everybody just hang tight for just one second do want to mention that, uh, as, as you know, we get closer to the holidays. Uh, I want to just let everyone know, and uh, those of you watching online as well, please uh, be wise as weather begins to change. If you don't feel comfortable, uh, you know, just text me or one of the other pastors and let us know uh, that you're not going to be here due to, you know, weather. Uh, we will let you know if we make the decision to cancel. Uh, but if we've not made that decision and you're not comfortable, please, I would much rather you be at home watching and alive and warm and safe. Does that make sense? Praise God. So, so uh, always make that announcement about this time of year, and so I just want everyone to know that. Also, uh, with all the busyness of, of life and schedules and everything coming up, there is uh, uh, one thing that we're going to be doing. The men are going to be particularly helping with this, but we've got a little evangelism idea that was birthed. Uh, I was talking to Brother Tim, so we're going to do this evangelism idea. So men, next Monday we'll have our prayer, but the 28th, uh, which will be the uh, Monday after Thanksgiving, uh, we'll meet here for prayer, but we're going to go do some prayer evangelism. And uh, it's going to be some invites to uh, the drama and, of course, to church, but also a little something for people to have. So uh, if it goes well, we're going to talk more about it in the new year in ways that we can... Uh, branch out and do some evangelism. So I just want to put that bug in everybody's ear. Amen. So thank you and God bless you. At this time, ladies, I believe you have a study. I believe our students, of course, have something going on. And and any of our children uh, for kingdom kids, you may be dismissed as well. God bless all of you in Jesus' name. And Brother uh, Mac Underwood is coming with a timely ten. I asked him on Sunday, I said, uh, do you think you'd be ready for Wednesday? He goes, yep. Said, so "Good, instant in season, out of season." Amen. So, brother Matt, come share with us the word of the Lord for a few minutes here. Amen.
1: Thank you, Bishop, for this opportunity. And short notice is sometimes okay with me because it kind of gets like the nerves off. You know, uh, if you you know you're a month out, you're like, you know, got your nerves. So we're all human; we all get nervous and Amen. Amen. so forth. There. But um, anyways, I want to jump right into it this evening, not prolong it. We're going to go to Luke chapter 7. Uh, If you were here last week and got to hear the word that uh, I brought forth, we talked about faith a little bit last week. And uh, this week, I want to kind of uh, talk a little more about faith uh, in a sense, but it's not going to be the main focus of our scripture today. Um, I'm going to focus on something that complements faith. Um, So you can kind of consider this like a part two to last week if you want. Um, So we're going to go to Luke chapter 7, starting at verse number 6, and I'll give you an overview of the first five verses here after we read for time's sake. Then Jesus went with them, starting at verse 6, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man sent under authority, having under me soldiers. I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. So here for a moment, I just want to talk about what makes God marvel what makes God marvel. So to marvel is to means to stand amazed. It's a common occurrence. If you read the New Testament, you'll actually find it. If you kind of pay attention, you'll actually find to marvel or the word marvel quite often in the New Testament. But the majority of the time you find it, it will be referring to uh, others or the disciples marveling at Jesus, marveling at his teachings or how he spoke or the miracles that he performed. So the majority of the time we see, we find people marveling at Jesus. However, in the scripture we just read, we found Jesus himself marveling. Yeah. So that obviously caught my interest. So I wanted to dig a little deeper into this story and into this centurion man and found out what caused Jesus to marvel. So a little, you know, a little backstory or overview. A centurion is a military leader of men. And the centurion we read about in Luke chapter seven in this uh, particular story had a sick servant who was about to die. Other translations refer to this servant as a slave. Um, so the centurion of such stature didn't really need to concern himself with just a servant or a slave. Nonetheless, it says that he loved him. He was obviously different and he cared for his servants and his slaves. And it says he loved him. So when this man heard of Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to get Jesus and to ask him to come and heal his servant. Just on a side note, I wanna point out that most likely this centurion was not a Jew. He was most likely a Gentile. Um, and there was no nothing to you know really indicate that he was a Jew and it wasn't very often that you would find a Jew in the Roman military. So, it was also very uncommon for Jews to be fond of a Roman soldier. Nonetheless, he sent the Jewish elders to Jesus and the Jewish elders went on his behalf and basically said, "Hey, Jesus, this this soldier, this not just soldier but Centurion, he is worthy and that Jesus should help him on his behalf." And they said that this Centurion, he was a good man. He built a synagogue and he loved the nation. So obviously the centurion was a little different than your average Roman soldier. So Jesus went with the elders. But as they got closer to the house of the centurion where the sick servant was, uh, he sent out one of his servants and told Jesus, stop, stop. I'm not worthy to even have you stand in my house. He felt so unworthy that he himself wouldn't even go out to tell Jesus this, but he sent a servant on his behalf. He wouldn't even go look Jesus in his eyes and his face because he felt that unworthy to even go to Jesus. Keep in mind that this centurion is a man of, of social status and power. He had formal power. He had a positional power in the government as, you know, as a Roman soldier that not even Jesus had. Jesus didn't have a formal position or power in the government, uh, but this, this Roman centurion soldier did. And he was treating Jesus as someone who would imagine somebody treating a king. And I can imagine people watching from the distance confused as to why the centurion, uh, soldier, the centurion you know, leader and soldier was treating this man named Jesus in such a way. He said unto Jesus, just say a word and my servant shall be healed. And when, that's where we get to the scripture. And when Jesus heard all these things, he marveled at the man. Jesus himself, God manifest in the flesh, marveled at a man. And he said, and I say unto you, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. So how did this man, and that we just read about, make God in flesh marvel? Obviously, the faith of the centurion man made God marvel. Surely, Jesus, though, had seen acts of faith. He'd seen great faith. We read about it in the scriptures in the New Testament. So I kept reading the story to see, you know, was it just faith? Or was there something that complimented his faith? What else in the story am I missing? And when you read the story, now I recommend that you don't just take my word for it, read it for yourself in Luke chapter 7, but when you read it, it's obvious how humble this centurion man was. This was, as I mentioned, a great man, but he was humble before Christ, not putting himself as a person above anybody, but his actions were of those as the lowest of men, he mentions this soldier he mentions that he tells a soldier to go and he goes, his servant to come and he does this and so forth. And basically he's showing that he is a man of power, and a man of such power and status would normally be full of pride, you'd imagine, and never treat someone who has a lower social status or, or political status than him with such respect. But this centurion man saw something in Jesus that many others did not recognize. He recognized that even his rank was not a match the rank of Jesus, that his authority could not even come close to comparing to the authority Jesus had as God has all authority in heaven and in earth. He recognized that not even the strongest military force in the world, the Roman Empire, could match the power of the one named Jesus. The world we live in today is a world that that grows more and more focused on the self more and more focused on me 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 it's a world that's self-consumed prideful and egotistical and it only continues to grow that way where selfishness is not only accepted but selfishness has come to a point where it is praised however that is not the life that jesus lived he came as a humble servant to seek and to save the lost the entirety of jesus's earthly existence was focused on others not himself one of my favorite stories that showed Jesus' selflessness and his humbleness is in Matthew chapter 4 where he was tempted. I'm going to read here real quickly in Matthew chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 8. Again, the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus saith unto him, get thee hence Satan. For it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So so Satan was offering him all these kingdoms that Satan had influence over, all, the, all this all the glory of the kingdoms that, that Satan had influence in. And a lot of people say that this may have been, you know, Jesus' most difficult temptation to, to, you know, fend off. Satan was offering Jesus the glory, the fame of man's eyes, a straight shot to a throne, perhaps avoiding the cross altogether. And Jesus would have, if he had accepted this, Satan was offering Jesus the affirmation of man, and it could have been so easy for that fleshly side, because keep in mind, Jesus was fully flesh, as well as fully God, and it could have been easy for that flesh of Jesus to be selfish in this moment and say, let me take him up on this offer, let me avoid the cross, let me get all the glory and all the love from all these people of of the world, but Jesus did not accept it. Jesus did not seek to entertain man, He did not seek the fame and the glory and the affirmation of man. But as I preached not too long ago, Jesus said his fulfillment was to do the will of the Father, the will of him that sent him. And his meat, his substance, was not of this world. And as the church, we follow his example. The church is not here for itself. The church is for others. Amen? The church is not here for ourselves, but it is for others. As the centurion, we must decrease and he must increase. We must not let our ego and our pride or our social status, wherever we are in life, get in the way of our faith, as it has done for many people. And you you can check and see how that ended up for Lucifer or Satan himself. Pride is arguably one of the greatest hindrances in man's life that holds him back from God. And a quote that I like to use is, you know, what is the, most, what is the hardest thing to break? Is it a diamond? Is it steel? Is it iron? And it's none of those. The hardest thing to break is a man's will because it's our because it's who we are, it's who we are as humans. We wanna follow our will. We wanna do what we wanna do, and to break that is a difficult thing. But it is our duty as a church not to follow our fleshly will, what we wanna do, but it is our duty as a church to pray that his will be done and that his kingdom come, to deny ourselves, as it says in the word of God, and to pick up our cross and follow after him. And when you combine that faith and that humbleness together, that selflessness, that it's not about me, it's not about what Mac wants, but it's about what God wants in my life and in my city and in Omaha. It's his will be done. Whenever you put that faith and that selflessness together, then you can even cause the creator of the universe to marvel. So as I close and Bishop comes to the pulpit, one of the best ways we can take the attention off of ourselves is to give God praise. As it gives all the glory to God. So why don't we give the next 10, 15 seconds a hand clap and a praise to God. Amen? Hallelujah.
0: Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank, you. Thank you, Jesus. God, you're so worthy. God, you're so awesome. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Hallelujah. We praise you. Hallelujah. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Truly, he is a good God. Amen? And uh, I know, Brother... Mac just stepped out, but thank, I'll be sure to thank him. That was a a timely word from the Lord, and it actually confirms uh, what I feel to uh, teach tonight, and also confirms something I'm going to speak on Sunday. So uh, I'm just full of confirmation tonight from the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Uh, Join me in John chapter 8, and uh, you can leave your Bible open there, because the bulk of what we're going to do tonight is look at John 8. There are some other scriptures that I will refer to and read. Um, But John 8 is the crux, the heart of what I want to read and preach tonight. My title is a synopsis of John 8. That's just simply a a basic title. You know, I want to teach tonight in such a way that reveals the, the truth about Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus went to the mount of olives in verse 2 Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And we'll just pause there, and there's been prayer already, so I'm just gonna dive in if that's all right in Jesus' name and uh, take uh, my liberty to teach what the Lord has laid on my heart. The eighth chapter of John is a most beautiful picture of Jesus. It begins with forgiveness. And ends with His oneness. Now, we know that the word is forever settled in heaven, right? We know that uh, everything else in this world is going to perish and pass away, but God, His kingdom, His word is unshakable, unstoppable, and it will uh, endure. Um, we know then that the word applies to everyone, but I want to make mention of this uh, because of its application to the message. The original audience of John 8 was Jewish. He was speaking to Jewish leaders, Jewish uh, people, um, Jewish commoners. That doesn't take away from the fact that it's not for us, but I want to make that clear because there's some things I'm going to show tonight uh, that that will come back to. Obviously, some would believe Jesus' words, but others would reject them. Some would commit to following Jesus. Others would dedicate themselves to murdering Him. So as we examine John 8 tonight, I want you to consider what you'll do with the Word of God. If you remember Sunday, one of the things that God led me to say was that angels are observing, God Himself is observing how we respond to the Word. That's not just on Sunday for that special message, but it's always God is watching how we will respond to his word. So will you receive it or reject it? Will you believe it or will you deny it? And remember, since God's word endures forever and since it will be opened and used to judge the world, we need to choose wisely how we will respond. So as I mentioned, John opens with forgiveness. Verses um, uh, beginning at 3, of course, through 11, we see this um, story, this account of a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Now, I don't mean to conjure up any, uh, you know, R-rated images in your mind, um, but, but we understand that if, if they're caught in the very act, you know, something's happening here. But if that's the case, then where's the man? You know, and that's a question, yeah, I, I, sister, I'm with you. Why did they only bring her to Jesus? Why did they not bring the man? And, and there's, we could conjecture on that and talk about why. Uh, some may think that it was the Jewish culture of, you know, uh, uh, how, how men and women were viewed. Uh, others may think that, that the man uh, was possibly a plant, uh, you know, to, to do this and was paid off. Uh, so that they could bring this woman to Jesus. Whatever the case was, we know that their motive was not pure. They cared nothing about this woman. They cared nothing about embarrassing her. All they were interested in was trapping Jesus. And they thought they had finally figured out how to trap Jesus. And and I want to just put a big as if right here. (laughs) Uh, you, You really think you can trap Jesus? The Living Word incarnate. Okay, good luck with that. And and so they, they, Jesus, Moses says to, you know, stone her. What do you say? And and they thought they had him because if he said stone her, ah, see, you're murdering, and they would take him to the Romans and convict him of murder. And if he said don't, ah, see, you're despising the law of Moses. Either way, they thought they had a win-win scenario. And I love. Jesus' response, okay? He just kind of gets down and does one of these numbers. Just starts writing in the dirt. You ever wonder what he said, what he wrote? I know there, there's verses, and I can't remember where it is, but I think it's in Jeremiah. It talks about something, writing the dust in the temple or something. And I, I've heard preachers preach different messages. Some have said he wrote sins. I, I don't know what he wrote. And, and scripture doesn't give us any clear uh, idea, but he, he just writes. And, and they're like looking at each other like, did he not hear us? And so they press him. Jesus, hello, uh, what are we going to do here? And he stands up and he says, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And he gets back and he starts writing again. And one by one, from the youngest to the eldest, they or eldest to youngest, excuse me, they drop their stones and they leave. But have you ever thought about this? When Jesus said, he that's without sin cast the first stone, that means Jesus could have cast the first stone. Because according to Scripture, he was the only man to live sinless. He could have picked up a rock and said, sorry, woman, (laughs) it is the law. And that would have started a barrage of rocks and stones being thrown at her. Hmm. But instead he says these words, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Interesting that this is how John 8 opens, and here's why. It sets the tone for what Jesus is about to teach. He's, it, it, it's almost as if he knew this was going to happen. Because it says at the beginning of the chapter, again, he goes to the temple, implying he's been there before, possibly the day before, or possibly the same time of that day. But he's gone back. He's gone to the Mount of Olives. He's now gone back to the temple. And, and if you know the geography, that would be like this side of the road versus the other side of 104th Avenue. It, it, it's, it's across the street, but even a little bit further than that. And so, depending on where he was in that mount, but he goes back. And this sets the tone. And here's why it sets the tone. You can either remain condemned by the law, or, which by the way, the law is death, or you can believe and receive life and mercy through Jesus Christ. And that's what that woman received that day. She received mercy. She received hope. I have to believe that that woman was probably one of the first 120, if not at least the first 3,000 that got the Holy Ghost. And so this sets the tone for what Jesus is going to talk about throughout the entirety of John chapter 8. If you've got a Bible that the words of Jesus are in red, you'll notice that almost the entire chapter is jesus speaking there's a few verses here and there where the jews say something or whatever but by and the 59 verses the vast majority of them are jesus speaking he opens then after this account where they have now left and dropped their stones and he says i am the light of the world hmm what a bold declaration It's one of many of the I am declarations Jesus makes throughout the book of John. By the way, if you want to know who Jesus is, I recommend reading the entire chapter of John because every chapter reveals another aspect, characteristic, name, part, whatever of who Jesus is. And so he boldly declares, I am the light of the world. He declares himself here It's not just putting a noun and a pronoun together. He's actually saying, I'm Yahweh. He is claiming to be God. And he could, because he was and is. And Jesus goes on to explain that he's the light. And those who follow him, watch this, will never be in darkness. In other words, he says here, you see the verse 12, if you follow him, you're not going to walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we have a choice. We can either follow Jesus and have the light of life or reject him and walk in darkness. Is there really a choice? Is it, is it I mean, shouldn't that be obvious? Sadly, though, many, not just the religious leaders, but many in Israel chose to remain in darkness, Jesus goes on to make two very bold statements in this passage, uh, verses 12 through 22. And, and, and these bold statements, there's, there's two of them I'm going to draw your attention to. They reveal how the religious elite and many in Israel had perverted and manipulated the law for their own fleshly sinful purposes. First, in verse 17, notice Jesus says, "...it is also written in your law." He in- <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Uh, it, it, he indicates it's no longer God's law. If you go back to Exodus, God wrote the law. But they have manipulated it. They have perverted it to where he's like, I don't recognize what you've done. It's your law. It's kind of like you'll see throughout, I think there's a couple places, it's in John and maybe in one of the other Gospels, where it's called the Feast of the Jews, as opposed to being called the Feasts of the Lord. It had become their religion. It wasn't God's. He wasn't in it. It's your law. That's the first statement. The second one, notice in verse 19. They said unto him, Where is your father? Jesus answered You neither know me nor my father. If you'd known me, you should have known my father also. In other words, he tells them, because you don't believe in who I am, you really don't believe in God. You claim to serve him. You claim to know him. You go through all the rituals, but you don't know who he is. That's a pretty bold statement. And this second one actually proves that their religion was all about them instead of God's will for those who rejected Jesus the reason they did was because they loved darkness because it concealed their evils. listen to what John 3 19 through 21 says I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation and the judgment is based on this fact God's light came into the world but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear, their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. So Jesus the light of the world. He comes out, at, but because their sin is exposed, instead of doing the right thing and repenting, they reject him. They, they clam up. They, they you know, continue to go down a path of rejection and sin. Continuing on, verses 23 through 30, Jesus will reveal the essentiality of the oneness of God. I want you to take a look at verse 24 with me. Watch what Jesus says. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. If you have a King James Bible, you'll notice that the He is also italicized. And the reason for that is there are times when the word uh, he does not have a supporting uh, word in the original Greek manuscript, but to help make it make sense to English, sometimes they will add it. Now, you could just as easily understand it without the he. Jesus says, <clears throat> For if you believe not that I am. And again, It's the same Greek phrase earlier of I am the light. In other words, he's saying, except you believe that I'm God, you will die in your sins. You know what that means? That means the oneness of God is an essential heaven or hell eternal doctrine. That is why verse 23 mentions that when you're born again, you're born from above. Just as Jesus was from above. Notice he says, You're from this world, but I'm not. I'm from above. That, John 3, 3 and 3 5, where it says, Must be born again, that literally means to be born from above. Yeah. And so, what Jesus is saying is, If you experience this new birth and you're born from above as I am from above, you have this light, you have this life. Amen. You see, the religious elite believed that that their bloodline saved them. In fact, sadly, many still do today. Yet they would reject the blood of Jesus Christ, which was the only blood that can wash away their sins. The blood of bulls and goats will never remit sin. It will only roll it ahead for a year and only until the Messiah came. Anything after that didn't roll anything ahead because the Lamb of God had come. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20, listen to this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We love that verse, but let's keep reading. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, we're talking about a choice tonight, light or darkness, you know, grace and and new covenant or law and death. If you are willing and obedient, what do you do? You'll eat the good of the land. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Acts 20 and verse 28 tells us that God purchased the church with his own blood. Let me ask you a question. It does say God, by the way. In Acts 20, 28, if you want to verify that, go there and look real quick. It does say God. It's not Jesus. It's not, and and I'm 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 playing with that for just a minute to to show you something. How many of you know that the Bible says God is a spirit? John 4, right? Where does a spirit get blood? From a human body. So God manifested himself in flesh. That's exactly right. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ purchased the church with his blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. First Peter 1 tells us that with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, that's how our salvation has been purchased. Praise God. The law only rolled sin ahead, and it just kept piling up and compounding. But Jesus took it away in one day, Zechariah tells us. Oh, hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? But here's what's cool. He didn't just take away all the sin to that point that had been rolled ahead. He took away all the sin that was present that day and all the sin yet to come in one one day all iniquity was taken away through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why the book of Hebrews says that he is the one sacrifice for sins forever. All right, I want you to hold that thought for a minute. Some of you already possibly know where I'm going with this. Maybe you're already thinking ahead and 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 feeling ahead. Others are like, okay, this is good, but what's what's the theme? What's the purpose? Here's the purpose. There is doctrine out there today teaching that somehow Jews will get a special dispensation for just themselves after Jesus comes. Well, if He's the one sacrifice for sins forever... And if it first came to Jews, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. James calls them the first fruits. How then can there be a special dispensation later outside of the word of God? That's not anti-Semitic. That's biblical. Because it's no longer about ethnicity. It's no longer about one nation or culture of people. It's whosoever will. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. That's, that's why Paul could write in Galatians and says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. That's why he could write in Colossians and, and include barbarian and Scythian and all you 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 pick the ethnicity. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where they come from. Doesn't matter their station in life. All who are born again are one in Christ. There's no big eyes and little U's. And by the way, God doesn't have you know stepchildren or grandchildren or foster children. I'm not, I'm not dogging on any of those things. Thank God we have parents who are foster parents. Thank God we have parents who love stepchildren. My point is to say that with God, everybody who is born again has to have and must have a first generation experience. Hallelujah. Well, although the religious elite and many in Israel refuse to hear and obey, look at verse 30 for a minute. Brother Mac liked to point out some things that stood out to him about Jesus marveling. Look at verse 30. And as he, he is Jesus, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Yes, there were many that rejected him. Yes, there were many who cried, crucify him. But many believed on him. I like that because Daniel prophesies the same thing in Daniel chapter 11 Verses 32 and 33, right in the middle of talking about the Antichrist and what he's going to do in the end times, he says, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits and they that understand among the people shall instruct many, not a few, many. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 10, also speaking about the events of the end times and specifically speaking about the abomination of desolation, he says, many shall be purified. And made white. Yes, there's going to be a falling away. Scripture prophesies that. That will happen. But there will also still be many purified. Many made white. Many being instructed in the Word. And as we see here, there's going to be teaching where some reject it and others don't. And thank God that there are others who won't reject it. Amen? That some rejected and others received Jesus is proof of the remnant truth prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. If you were to read Isaiah 10, verse 22, uh, I'm going to have to forego this for time's sake. But it's also quoted in Romans uh, 11, verses 1 through 10, also Romans 10, verses 20 through 21. Paul here refers to what Isaiah is teaching and how that Isaiah says, though there's a, uh, the, the Israel is like the sand of the seashore, only a remnant of them shall return. Paul takes that and gives us its prophetic fulfillment that although Israel was many in number, only a remnant of them were saved. And he goes on to say, according to the election of grace. The word election is eklektos in the Greek, the elect, the called out born again believers, only by the new birth of grace or grace, the new covenant. That's what Paul's teaching there. So he's speaking the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then he says, because here, here's the challenge well, God has rejected the Jews. And I love it at the beginning of Romans 11, he goes, Really? Um, excuse me, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected us. We rejected him. He goes on to mention later in the chapter that all Israel will be saved, and he tells us how. When Jesus comes and takes away sin. That's how we're saved, whether you're an Israelite. Whether you're, uh, you know, from from Africa or Antarctica or or Asia, it doesn't matter. That's how you're saved, through Jesus Christ. Jesus boldly affirms that he is God manifested in the flesh. He answers a question in verse 25, and listen to what he says. Uh, Let me read the whole verse. Then they said unto him, who are you? (laughs) Jesus, I could just see him wanting to do this. Oh, All right? <laughs> What's what he says? And Jesus said to them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. Number one, the beginning of his ministry. So possibly just a year or two prior, uh, depending upon where this falls on the chronology of his three and a half year ministry. And that is an accurate interpretation. <laughs> you can also interpret it prophetically. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Let's go back there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, right? He's literally referring to the beginning. In other words, if you knew your Bible, you would know who I am. (laughs) Did you know Moses prophesied Jesus he even said that when he comes he'll circumcise their heart isn't that interesting then that Paul says that the new birth baptism in Jesus name and speaking tongues is the circumcision of the heart huh Bible does match well praise God You see, Israel had changed the law to fit their lifestyle. But God has not changed his message from the beginning. It remains the same. Indeed, then, Jesus is God and therefore immutable. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I change not. Are you thankful for that? Praise God. The next segment, verses 31 through 40, is about the seed of Abraham. You see, continuous obedience to God's word ensures that you are free in Christ. The Jews that Jesus addressed, though, assumed that just because they were descendants of Abraham, they were automatically free. And again, Jesus probably had a slap-the-forehead moment where he's like, really, you think you're free? You're under Roman oppression. You're not free. But due to their spiritual blindness and their deafness to God's truth, they did not realize that Jesus Christ was indeed the promised seed of Abraham. That's what Paul writes about in Galatians 3, 16 through 20, that he says, and unto the seed, not seeds, seed, which was Christ. Paul prophesies this, speaks this, explains this. He then goes on in Galatians 3, 26 through 29, that if... Uh, And and Jesus is, is, is also referring to this. If they would only believe, they would understand that only by and through and in Jesus Christ do you become Abraham's seed. That's powerful. Because Romans 2, 28 and 29 also tell us that a true Jew is one who is born again. That's why Galatians 6 calls the church... The new creation, the Israel of God. That's why in 1920 George Pharaoh would write his famous all in him song, and in verse four, mention of Israel recreated, indicating the remnant truth coming to fulfillment through Christ, through his oneness, through his blood, to create one church. It's what Romans 11 prophesies when it talks about the vine and natural branches, Israel, broken off and a remnant grafted back in. And unnatural branches, Gentiles, also grafted in into one vine, creating one church. It's why in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, he goes in, in the same detail and explains how that they were apart at one point, but now they've been brought together as one habitation in Christ. So, the belief that says the Jews have this special dispensation over here separates what God has brought together. I'm going to believe what the Bible says and not what tradition teaches or not what some others may teach. I'm going to believe what the Bible says. Is that okay? Okay. Just making sure. I mean, I'm going to do it whether you say okay or not, but... I'm just making sure you're okay with it because that's what I'm gonna do and I hope that's what you're gonna do which I think you are praise God the Bible tells us that if the rulers of this world would have known who he was they would not have crucified him so they were blinded by the veil of Moses they were blinded by the law that they had manipulated for their own sake And did not even realize who he was this is why in John 8 41 through 47 Jesus told him you're of your father the devil ouch see we like the Jesus that says neither do I condemn you go and sin no more but the same Jesus that said that to a woman who is embarrassed by her sin is the same Jesus that would speak to the religious elite and say, um, you're not of your father, Abraham, you're of your father, the devil. Jesus explains that Satan was a murderer, no truth is in him, and that he's the father of lies, verse 44. But we know Jesus from John fourteen-six is the way, the truth, and the life. Those who believe in and obey God's word are born again, making God their father. Those who reject and deny Jesus Christ make Satan their father. That is why in verse 47, Jesus adamantly told the unbelievers, you are not of God. This is bold, I understand. We're going to get to some good part in just a minute here. I'll, I'll bring this around to us, a nice, you know, uh, you know, cherry on the top ending. So just hang on. Verses 48 through 51, I want to show another point here. Look at verse 48 with me. Then answered the Jews and said unto him. So he's just got done telling them they're not of God. They're of their father, the devil. And, and so they're like, well, you know, we're, we're, you slammed us. We're going to slam you. Watch this. <laughs> they said unto him, you're a Samaritan and have a devil. By the way, calling someone a Samaritan was a very derogative Racial slur of the day. Watch what Jesus says, though. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I seek not my own glory. There's one that seeks and judges. Verily I say unto you, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. You know, Jesus never, he refuted the fact that he had a devil. But he didn't correct him on calling him a Samaritan. So I'm going to go out on a limb here because that's where the fruit is. And I'm going to tell you Jesus is the Good Samaritan. How many you familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? Most everybody, right? Uh, real quickly, a guy gets beat, left for dead. He's on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets beat up, left for dead, right? Along comes a Levite and a priest. They can't help him. Huh, Levite and priest, the law. Interesting, right? And then a Samaritan comes bandages up his wounds, right? Wipes the blood off, puts him on his own beast, probably a donkey, maybe a camel, takes him to an innkeeper, okay, which would be like a, a, not just a hotel, but would be like, you know, like maybe an apartment complex, what we would know as an apartment complex today, And, and then gives him two pence, which was enough to at least get started, and then he says, you know, he must have known this innkeeper because he said, when I come back, If there's been any more cost, I'll pay that cost too. So he he completely takes care of the guy. Well, doesn't that sound like Jesus? What the law could not do, Romans, in that it was weak through flesh, the Levite, the priest, what the law could not or would not do, Jesus, the good Samaritan, did. Now, that's just my opinion. That's not Bible, so... If you don't want to believe he was a good Samaritan, that's okay. I'm not telling you you have to. It's not like a bylaw of the church or anything. But it's just interesting to me that Jesus never refutes and says, neither am I. He, does, he tells them, I don't have a devil, but he doesn't say, and I'm not a Samaritan. He just accepts it. Because that's what he does. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Verses 52 through 59 round out this chapter and Jesus will tell them that Abraham saw him. And they're baffled. They're like, wait a minute. You're not yet 50 years old. Abraham's been dead. How in the world did Abraham see you? And I could see Jesus going, I'm glad you asked. Verses 56 and 58, he reveals that he alone is God. Listen to what he says. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Verse 58, listen to this. Jesus answered them, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, uh-oh, uh-oh. This is now the third or fourth time Jesus has boldly declared, I'm God, and he's in the temple, no less. Whew. In Genesis 22, we read of the account of Abraham and Isaac going to the land of Moriah. In 2018, I was in that land, and I watched as our guide pointed and we're standing where Abraham would have said to the lad, "I and the, uh, or to the, his servants, I and the lad go yonder and worship. And when the, when the guide points, he says, look where I'm pointing. And we all look, and he's pointing at where we had just come from Calvary, from Golgotha. And he says, every... Guide every rambi believes firmly that with everything we've studied archaeologically etc scripturally all this is where he would have stood and that's where he would have gone the very same place that jesus would later go carrying the wood like isaac carried the wood being a willing sacrifice like isaac was being a living a willing sacrifice and it was there that that Abraham declares, Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. That's Genesis 22, 14. You can read it. That's exactly what it says. Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. So when did Jesus, or Abraham see Jesus? There, in Genesis 22, 14, when he obeyed God and took his son and was willing to sacrifice him you can read in romans 4 about this account as well that he had enough faith in god that if if god did take him god would raise him from the dead because he was the promised seed that's another prophecy that although jesus died he rose again and so Jesus is saying to them, wait a minute, if you're really your father Abraham, you would know, because Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham forsook everything, confessed he was a stranger, and sought after me. So imagine the surprise on Jesus' face when the seed of Abraham by ethnicity and bloodline is rejecting him. Him. And this is how it ties into something Brother Mac preached. Isn't it interesting that a Gentile centurion can notice something about the authority of God. And so much so that it causes Jesus to marvel at his faith and say, I've not seen this kind of faith. No, not in all of Israel. I'm not preaching tonight against Israel. I'm not trying to preach against Jews. Uh, uh, I went to Israel. I love them. I want to go back to Israel. What I'm trying to preach to you is this. These 59 verses interpret and prove and qualify the truth about Jesus Christ. This is why Proverbs 30 verse 5, the New Living Translation says, Every word of God proves true. So I can say with absolute proof, Jesus is who he says is says he is. And I can also say with absolute proof that any doctrine that's contrary to the Word of God is false. It's heresy. It's diabolical. It's damnable. So what I would say to you now is study to show yourself to prove so you can rightly divide God's truth. Build yourself up in the Holy Spirit, praying in the Holy Ghost, and follow as God leads you into all truth. Be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures daily for yourself. Fall in love with God and His truth so that you're never deceived and fall away. And then, follow me as your pastor. Follow me, but watch, only as I follow Christ. As long as I am following Christ, get right behind me lock, stock, and barrel. But if I'm not, go find a pastor who is. And since every word of God proves true, you can trust it wholeheartedly. Those who love God's truth, Jude and Second Peter tell me, will never fall. If I make this calling and election sure, I'm never going to fall. That's what the Bible says. I'm going to go with what the Bible says, and I'm going to discard tradition. I'm going to discard opinion. I'm, I'm going to flush it down the toilet like the, the, the junk that it is. I'm going to hold on to this, though, because this is sacred and true, and it proves itself from Genesis through Revelation. If you've ever stepped into my study, if not, go by and look tonight with the door open. And when you look through the door, you'll see this this picture on the back with this rainbow, 63,779 cross-references from Genesis through Revelation proving the truth of this Bible. It's not just another book. It is the very Word of God. Let's stand together. Oh, hallelujah. God is good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for who you are and all that you do. We praise you and we ask you, Lord, to teach us and lead us. Help us to be obedient and follow you all the days of our life. We ask it and believe it in Jesus' mighty name. And would everybody say amen? God bless you. You are deployed.